Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and today we have a conversation on shame. And speaking of shame, I just crunched the numbers, and it turns out that for every listen of this podcast, we get 0.0005 reviews. So some people are really not pulling their weight, and if there's an uptick in quantity of reviews now, I'm happily on the side of we should embrace shame. But you, of course, should make your own call based on what the experts say. So here is Emil with Patty Ashley and Tanvir Ahmed. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Every episode, we try and frame up a Principle of Charity personal challenge. And Emil, before I pose the challenge this week, I want to remind our listeners of three primary guidelines for applying the principle of charity. The first one is we should temporarily suspend our own beliefs and seek a thoughtful understanding prior to assessing the merits or weaknesses of the other person's argument. The second is we should assume that the other person's proposed ideas are true, even though our initial reaction might be that they are not. And the third is we should have a focus on wanting to understand rather than search for inconsistencies in the other person's argument. And so the principle of charity personal challenge this week is, can you apply just one of these three guidelines when next you are in an argument with someone who has a completely different point of view to you? And on that note, Emil, tell us about the show today. Thanks, Lloyd. The topic today is shame on you, should we embrace shame? Now, shame is a bit of a hard emotion to define, isn't it? We sort of know it when we see it and feel it, but it's not something we talk about that much. Maybe we're even ashamed of it. But it's a complex and powerful emotion that can corrupt our inner sense of self-worth and in its worst incarnation as toxic shame can tell us that our very being is just not enough, that we're fundamentally flawed. On the face of it, though, shame is that feeling of humiliation we get when we are seen by others to have done something wrong. Like any unpleasant emotion, we want to avoid it, and so it helps keep us on the straight and narrow, doing what society tells us is the right and proper thing to do. At its best, it's the emotion that helps keep us bound together in community. It's subtly distinguished from its cousin, guilt, where shame focuses on our sense of self-worth as we judge ourselves through the eyes of our community. Guilt is more about what we've done, and it's a much more individual affair. It's said that the world can be divided into shame-based and guilt-based cultures, with the West sitting on the guilt side. 
This is because the West has prioritized this idea of the individual with our sense of right and wrong, a matter between ourselves and whatever higher power we ascribe to, whether it's our God, the state laws, all internalized in our conscious itself. In the West, guilt is seen as an appropriate and even productive emotion with shame as the corrosive cousin. But in shame-based cultures, which really make up most of the world, it's shame, not guilt, that does the heavy lifting. And given most of us in the West live in such a rich multicultural communities, it's important to understand shame if we're going to understand what motivates the people around us. But more than that, shame is a foundational emotion. And even though it's not valued in the West, maybe even because it's not valued, it lurks in the shadows, often affecting us in powerful, corrosive ways that are hard to excavate. In this conversation, Lloyd, we're going to talk about this deeply corrosive aspect of shame with a leading world expert and look at how to release its grip on us. At the same time, we're going to speak with a leading psychiatrist who's written a book in defense of shame to see what benefits shame can bring. We'll also open the lens a little wider, looking at how shame is used by conservatives, liberals, but more interestingly, by the progressive left, which challenges us to be careful not to shame people's sexual expressions, weight, or in fact, anything that's seen as an authentic version of oneself. Also, at the same time, the left and other groups have been very successful using public shaming through cancel culture as a way to regulate what can and can't be said. And finally, we'll discuss social media as the super fuel for shame as it provides us with an almost infinite community within which we seek praise and fear condemnation. Lloyd, I've been excited to take on this topic as shame has sort of lurked in the corner of my life for a long time. I've produced films like Shame with uh, Michael Fassbender, which Steve McQueen directed, as well as an adaptation of James Kutzi's South African masterpiece, Disgrace. And through therapy, I've discovered just how insidious shame can be. So I'm looking forward to taking shame out of this shadow, exposing it to the harsh light of day, seeing what it's got to offer, and then I'm sure quickly shutting it away again. Lloyd, who have we got on the podcast today? Emil, our two guests today are Patty Ashley and Tanvir Ahmed. Let me start with telling you a little bit about Patty. Patty has a doctorate in psychology from the Union Institute and University and a Master of Education in Early Childhood from the Old Dominion University. She's the author of Living in the Shadow, Treatment Strategies to Overcome Core Shame and Reconstruct the Authentic Self. Patty is an international workshop presenter, a TEDx speaker, and a psychotherapist, and she runs Authenticity Architects in Boulder, Colorado. Her Authenticity Architecture model facilitates long-term changes in the brain and nervous system, helping clients rediscover a sense of belonging and connection. Emil, our other guest today is Tanvir Ahmed. Tanvir is a psychiatrist, author, and columnist on social issues for the Australian Financial Review. His books include Fragile Nation, which is about the cultural rise of mental health, and In Defense of Shame. In 2016, Tanvir became a contributor to The Spectator magazine, and he is also an adjunct lecturer to the University of New South Wales. He has served on local government, government advisory boards, and is a national representative for the Australian Medical Association. Tanvir is based in Sydney, Australia. Emil, both Patty and Tanvir work closely with people who have suffered from feelings of shame. And whereas Patty is focused on the deep damage caused by toxic shame, offering ways to heal, Tanvir's multicultural practice has forced him to look at the cultural forces at play and to reconsider some of the benefits of shame. Emil, let's bring on the guests.
thanks so much for joining us, Patty and Tanvir, to this episode. Patty, I'll start with you first. Um, you know, I've always found shame a bit of a difficult word to pin down. We, we sort of know it when we see it, but it can be hard to define. What actually is shame and why is it problematic for so many people? It is a tough word, isn't it? It's, I, I grapple with the marketing. You know, I study shame like Brene Brown, who's the shame researcher, you know, talks about people like turn away because the word itself is, I think, misunderstood and sometimes has different layers of meaning. So my work is really around the deeper level of core shame, which is, as Brene Brown discovered, the um, feeling of being unworthy of love and belonging. But we think of shame as something we feel when we do something bad, which is a level of shame. But the shame I'm talking about is a deep neurobiological belief that I'm not worthy of love and belonging and I'm not good enough. Mm. And that's hard to define because the word shame itself is shaming. So, oh, mm. I'll talk about shame. And what's and what what is the, so debilitating about like when you go into that more chronic shame area that you focus in? How would you articulate why it's so damaging? Well, I mean, I think historically we've lived with a lot of shame based beliefs, like the old parenting practices. You know, you should be ashamed of yourself. Stop crying before I give you something to cry about. So there's an ingrained feeling of shame that is shameful in a way. So we ought to not feel it, but we do, but we don't quite understand it. Sounds a bit like anxiety. There's a sort of fear and then there's a fear of feeling fear and you, people can, can get stuck. Yeah. If I have shame that I must have done something really bad, like murdered someone or some sexual perversion, that's what people think of shame. They think right. it's I've done something really bad. However, I think people misunderstand the core shame that I'm talking about, which again is that feeling of I'm not worthy of love and belonging. Nobody's going to love me. I'm not lovable, which again is a deeper neurobiological setup. So yeah. the word itself conjures up though that image of, oh, I must have done something bad. Or if you're talking about shame or you're you're using that word, then something really bad is in the room. And I'm not sure it necessarily is. And how would you, how do we differentiate between shame and guilt? How would you define the difference between the two? Yeah, that's exactly a great way to separate the two. Guilt is I did something bad, whereas shame is I am bad. And so the affects of guilt, embarrassment, humiliation are, are, have similar feeling tones, but shame itself is this core belief that I'm not worthy of, I am, I'm bad. So you can't get over it. So if you do something, excuse me, shameful or, something you feel that you might feel guilt about and you repair it with the other person, say you come into work and you've, you know, you've had too much to drink and you're kind of hung over and, you, and you're not doing so well, you know, and then you just go, Oh, that was a really bad thing to do. I'm going to be a little bit more careful next time not to drink too much and go into work. But if you have core shame, you can't get over it. You're like, what's wrong with me? There's I'm a terrible person. Why am I doing this? And and you kind of ruminate around the fact that it snowballs into I'm not worthy of love and belonging, as opposed to, oh, I really messed up and I need to repair that and fix it. And I, I feel really bad about it. We'll, we'll, we'll get to and unpick some of those things, obviously, through the podcast. But just to jump to you, Tambir, I mean, you went out on a limb and wrote this book in defense of shame, which I really loved and was a launching pad for for wanting to explore this um, more deeply. But how would you define shame and, and what are your main arguments in favour of this um, quite unpleasant emotion? 
Yeah. I mean, it's rarely black and white, I guess, in, in favour or against. Yeah. Look, I, I'm just fascinated by, as Paddy was alluding to, I, I just think it's a fascinating door to think about a whole range of issues and modern life and the, the therapeutic culture and mental health. But one way to think about shame, it helps us think about our relationship to a moral language, our relationship to groups, and our relationship to primitive emotions, right? And that's, that's one way to think of the significance of shame. And, I mean, the history of shame, you know, guilt is a relatively new thing in terms of it being part of our lexicon. It, it, it really, guilt and shame tell us how we've shifted, at least in the Western world, of seeing ourselves in tribes and groups, groups and a shared morality uh, to a more a codified internal view of what's right and wrong. And this is where Patty, what Patty alludes to is, is I agree with where, you know, guilt it has a more individual type feeling that you've codified a set of beliefs and you don't necessarily, yeah, it's, it's about I feel like I did something wrong, whereas shame is very much in relation to a group that you've transgressed some sort of boundary or an acceptable behaviour and uh, it's very much about, it's also about social ranking. All of those things fit into uh, the notion of shame. And uh, I mean, that's where I think it's just a, it's a very fascinating door to, to think about a whole range of current modern sort of trends. Yeah, yeah. In, in a sense, do you think it's relevant to the society we live in today? If you say we're in a Western individualistic society where our primary relationship is with you know, um, the state in a sense or our God or our conscience rather than living in these, uh, you know, living in community. And, I mean, we all do, but I guess it's where the balance lies and in the West it sort of um, tends to lie in that more formal individual sense. Is, is shame an important way to regulate social conduct, do you think? Look, absolutely. I mean, we've just come out of the pandemic too, so it was very interesting the rise of shame throughout that period where suddenly there was this bigger element of solidarity, a real sense of groups and a real sense of uh, shared behaviour. So you had terms like COVIDiot. Um, so I think shame sort of rose to the fore. But what you alluded to, Emil, I think is really important, that you're right, in liberal democracies, we're effectively legal entities as individual citizens and we have this relationship with the state. And even sort of political thinkers like, say, your Francis Fukuyama often talks about how we struggle, what, we almost don't know what to do with groups or the very notion of groups. Um, you know, that's why we have all these big debates, whether it's, you know, in Australia we're debating the voice about how to incorporate, re recognise Aboriginal or Indigenous groups. In the past we've had debates around racial discrimination, similar where we don't always know how to incorporate groups in a legal, healthy way and how that might collide with the, with the notion of individual rights. But well, look, where I find it really interesting, I mean, my work, you know, my, overlapping with Paddy in mental health, so a lot of my day is contending with people coming in, speaking in a quite a limited medical way. And this is, it, it's, it's not what you would necessarily think. I feel like modern language of how we describe our experience has become so medicalised to an extent. So people come in and say, oh, yeah, I think I've got, ADHD or I've got problems with anxiety, etc. And one way to think about it, I'll, I'll even give a bit of a definition of mental health. We we talk about mental health and we ask what it is. Like intellectually, from a knowledge base, it's really three different disciplines. And one is neuroscience, so that you know, I guess we have brains and chemistry and 
Uh, and there's a chemical signature of the variety of emotions we, we feel, including something like shame. Uh, another uh, discipline there is what's called behaviorism. And that's essentially what most psychologists engaging. And that's really about thoughts. Uh, a set of thoughts can lead to emotions or rewards and punishments regulate behavior. So that's essentially a whole, and you know, many of your listeners will know Pavlov dogs and Beck's triad, these sort of themes. Yeah. And the third component is what's called psychoanalysis. And this is arguably, you know, one of the most interesting aspects of psychiatry historically. And to some extent, psychoanalysis has to some extent been shamed and put on the outer of, of modern uh, mental health thinking. But at a deeper level, and that's what, say, people like Freud and to some extent Jung, some of the biggest thinkers in the field are known for. And that's really that at a deeper level, we're primitive beings, we're instinctual beings, we have all these, you know, instinctual things, be it aggression or sexuality, disgust. Yeah. And to some extent, we're also social beings and we're almost in a, a performance, you know, a bit like the Shakespearean idea of, you know, we're, we're in this eternal play. And often mental health problems are this tension between our instinctual selves and this social world that we have to sort of navigate. And that's where I think shame is interesting because shame is one of these instinctual, almost primitive type emotion. Yet we've developed, uh, our societies have developed that we kind of we actively either suppress or we try and diminish the notion of the primitive in our culture. And there's right. reason for that. There's reason for that, but there's also um, potential problems. So you say that it's 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 there anyway under the surface, even if we we've sort of theoretically evolved to a different political way of uh, working together as a society. I mean, in your book, you talk about some of the more multicultural clients of yours from non-Western backgrounds, and how shame is more prevalent when they come, and that that was a sort of moment of catalyst for you. Is that maybe you could just spend a minute to talk about the cultural differences and then, and then yeah. we'll move on. Look, absolutely. I think that's really important because it's Salman Rushdie has a quote that shame is not the exclusive property of the East. So even in some of these debates, there's sometimes almost an element of Orientalism that there's shame-based cultures, say from the East or the developing world, and there's sort of more guilt-based cultures, which is largely the Western world. And, you know, there's almost, not sort of racism, but there's, there's almost an element of Orientalism uh, about some of that discussion. Um, and you are right. So often I see patients, I mean, I grew up in Bangladesh and it was very much a shame-based culture, if you like. The, the term for shame there is lodger. And I was very aware of it right throughout growing up. And you are right. Many patients I see, when I see them as individuals, it's not adequate. Like essentially they feel humiliated or shamed in their group. If I see patients from Africa or Asia, the Middle East, and I often have to think about how to incorporate my treatment with their group. And increasingly their group is imagined. We essentially live in a world where we're often linked to imagined groups. So we have actual groups, we have communities, etc. But especially with the rise of online, you're often talking to people and the notion of their imagined group, uh, whether, what their perception of it is. Um, and me treating them purely as individuals is often inadequate yeah, uh, in terms of you know, whole, getting to this place. The whole and that's the other thing. Often the language I have in mental health is too limited. So So often it is about shame, it's about humiliation. I'll give you a great example, Emil. Often I deal with workers' compensation cases where someone feels a sense of injustice in the workplace and then they have a psychological condition. And some of those cases, and I'm not sure if Patty deals much with this, but they're some of the most intractable cases in our legal system, and especially when it's a psychiatric component. 
and they they just struggle to get better. And and when you really take the, when you look at them, it's often about humiliation. It's about a sense of injustice, and it's deeply primitive. It doesn't our modern categories of mental health just don't capture what's going on yeah. for many of these yeah. people. And traditional treatments often do not, uh, you know, shift them very much. Yeah, and I guess we've learned about the importance of dignity in work to some of the rise of populism, and you know, it, it goes to some of those more traditional virtues and and shadow emotions. I mean, Patty, you talked about this, you know, the two versions of shame: the 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 sort of more surface level and the more chronic, deeper level. On the surface level, it does seem to do some heavy lifting in regulating people's behaviours. You know, I was thinking if you steal from a neighbour or you destroy public property, you you should probably feel ashamed of your actions. You've let not just yourself down, but the people around you. And we all have these social ties and obligations with the people around us. But as you've said, it does have a habit of descending or shifting into something more chronic and toxic, where instead of feeling ashamed of what you've done, you know, where you can still rightly hang your head amongst your community until you're forgiven, you feel like you are indelibly stained and that you're not worthy in your core in a sort of a priori sense. And what I'm wondering is, how, does that shift from the more healthy shame, if you could call it, or appropriate shame to this more toxic shame always happen? How does it happen? Is it inherent in the emotion itself? Or could we keep the more appropriate shame over bad actions without letting it drift into that that toxic level? Yeah, good question, Emil. Um, my background previously has been in education and early childhood. And so I was a child development specialist for a long time for pediatric group. So I, mm. I was knee deep in attachment theory. And so what mm. they've discovered with sh the neurobiology of shame is that it, it starts with attachment. And so also an attachment being how the caregiver attunes to an infant in early childhood and sees and hears um, the child and reflects that back. And then the child starts to feel safe and loved and develops neural connections in the right brain. So the right brain develops in the first three years of life before the left brain, which is our thinking brain, our right brain mm -hmm. is our feeling, our emotive brain. And so that's what's happening first in the early years. So if a child doesn't have healthy attachment, those neurons that are, they get pruned off, so to speak, that they don't develop in a way that the the individual develops a sense of self that says, I'm okay. This person sees me and hears me. And again, it's all unconscious and it's all nonverbal, which is what makes this thing so challenging. I mean, I do two day trainings on shame and form therapies and trying to put language to something that really doesn't have language because it's formed in this nonverbal mm. part of life. It's a feeling. It's I'm feeling held. I'm feeling safe. It's all about emotional safety. So if we don't have that starting early on as a foundation, it's harder to get our feet on the ground, so to speak. And then we start having other situations in toddlerhood and going to school where we're now trying to find a sense of, of emotional safety and we might make up stories like I'm going to act out to get attention or I'm going to overgive or I have to take care of my parents or, and again, none of this is conscious, but then you yeah. look, this is how I work in therapy is I look at the, the storylines of a person's life up until whatever age. So they come to see me at 20, 30, 40, whatever. 
we'll look at all of that and, and I'll come up with, here's the main story that I think got set up for you early on. And here's how it's showing up now in your life as an adult, a people pleaser, as somebody who's av- avoids conflict, somebody who, um, you know, acts out, lashes out. My view has become one of it's all core shame underneath that's creating these patterns of behavior. So when we identify that and we deconstruct it and we reconstruct something else, like, well, in order to feel lovable, I don't have to people please anymore. What, how, what's a healthy boundary for me in terms of how I find that self-love, which is really hard to do. I mean, Mm. none of my clients can say they love themselves. Mm. I can't even sometimes say I love myself. I've Mm. worked on it for a long time, but you know, it's like that feeling of self-love, self-compassion. We develop, we have to reconstruct because it's somewhat been deconstructed from early on. So, so just so I've worked through this formal link between the attachment, emotional, lack of emotional safety, a sense of unlovableness that comes from that, which then leads to the sense of not being worthy. And that's where that core shame happens. Is that how mm-hmm. that's the sort of line of causation? And how does, and so you're saying this happens so early that in a way, as you get older in life, if you are rightly shamed for doing something wrong, you know, for littering in the park, it might trigger that deeper sense. And you're like, well, this is yes, because I'm just a, I'm a terrible person in my core. Yeah. How are those two levels related? And, and if you don't have that core shame, is the normal appropriate shame, you know, a valuable emotion and helpful emotion in society? Or is it still always slightly slippery and dangerous because it can descend into something bigger than what it is? Well, here's the difference. If you look at the old parenting pedagogies that that say, you know, break the will of the child before they're old enough to remember. And, you know, you should yeah. be of yourself. So use that example of litter in the park. Okay. So your child throws his trash down and a parent could say, what's your problem? Why are you, look at the mess that you're making, right? Mm. That's the parent shaming the child. The other thing the parent could do instead is say, oh my goodness, you threw the trash down and, and, and we want to keep the park clean. So let's pick it up and put it in the garbage because that's the right thing to do. That's how we, you know, make the world a better place. So we're teaching our children how to behave without shaming them into understanding the correct behavior. And I think, again, we've just lived with this shame-based parenting practice, even in schools, there's so much shame. And so then you see it overflow into the world, you know, where we're, we're mom shaming, body shaming, um, all kinds of shame that's happening in the world. It's just this thing that we do. It's a way to control, right? So because it's all about control the the parents had historically thought that was a great way to control their children. When now with what we know about child development is that's the worst thing we can do to develop a healthy self-esteem and but if you go in if you go into a park patty to use that first example which is a bit uh yeah you can you can feel the response of a as a child of a parent going you know what have you done you're destroying the park you know you're really bad what you did is really bad and is that necessarily for a child let's assume that child um had a really strong attachment with the parent and there was a great foundation of love that sort of shaming for an action do do you still think that's a problem even if there is good attachment there at the foundation that that it's still i guess a sort of something toxic to it that's unnecessary 
I do. I do think that there would be repair or and or a res, more of a resilience had there not been had there been a healthy attachment. Right. However, I think if a parent is aware of healthy attachment, a parent is also going to be aware not to shame their child in public. And right. I think that's what we're talking about, the difference between shame and shaming here. You know, yeah. shaming in no regard is ever okay in my mind. There's yeah. and, and I you know, I studied with one of the great parent educators back in Virginia, Catherine Kersey, who passed away a few years ago, but it was really difficult to learn this or learn the skills of how we can parent children and help them make good choices without shaming them because it, it was such a familiar thing. Like um, Bruno Badelheim, yeah. a famous psychiatrist says the difference between instilling discipline and imposing discipline, you know, we want to instill self-discipline. We want our children to make good choices and it's really counterproductive when we shame them from what they're doing rather than teach and guide them into the, the better choice takes a lot more work, takes a lot of time. It's breaking old repetitive patterns that are in our DNA. And that's why it's so hard. And we want to go back to defaulting to, Oh, well, it's not that bad. You know, I turned out all right or stuff like Mm. that. And even the humor that we use. So under the age of seven, our brains are in theta brainwaves. It's very much like hypnosis. And we can also can't distinguish fantasy from reality. So whatever big people say to a child under the age of seven is a reality. So you might make a joke, say, oh, you're just, uh, you know, oh, you know, what? Yeah, I bet your parents want to give you back or something like that, you know? Ha, 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 ha. They think mm-hmm. it's funny. And that is a pet peeve of mine that we have to educate people to understand that that is not funny. Mm. It's not. Mm. If you're past age seven and your brain has developed in a way that you might be able to sort that out and see that it's funny is one thing, but under the age of seven, anything we say to a child starts to create that sense of self. You're not talking to someone who's interpreting it as you would interpret it. Exactly. Patty, just staying on this on on this movement towards a deeper shame, because I just, before I get back to you, Tamvi, I'd like to just understand a bit more how you see how debilitating toxic shame can be and and in a way that that many of us don't necessarily even know that we're holding on to that because it's it's as you say it's pre-verbal um we can't articulate it to ourselves and it just comes out in in a sense in the the data of our actions in a sense um and that it is often linked to early trauma. How insidious is this shame? How do we ferret it out? And most importantly, how do we rid, our say, rid ourselves of, of toxic shame? Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's huge. I mean, I can't, I can't say I've seen one person in my practice that I don't see some aspect of shame. I, I really mm. think it's like the hub of the wheel. It's underneath anxiety and depression. And it's not even in our DSM, which is our Diagnostic Manual for Mental Health. Um, you know, we don't even have it in there as, <laughs> but I think it's underneath all of it. You know, if, mm-hmm. um, I don't believe I'm worthy of love and belonging. And then I've created all kinds of stories that I make up and behaviors that I'm doing that I'm not even unconscious of. So my work is really about excavating what those stories are. And I have various tools that I use to do that. 
once a client sees that, and it's also demystifying that, like Brene Brown's book is, I thought it was just me, but it isn't. So demystifying that it's not just them because people think it's just me. What's wrong with me? Mm. And I, and I demystify it a lot by talking about Alice Miller, who studied um, parenting practices in the 18th century. Um, you know, children should be seen and not heard, break the will of the child before they're old enough to remember, beat the devil out of a child. You mm. know, a two-year-old having a temper tantrum is possessed by the devil. Mm. So we think that the 18th century was a long time ago, but it's amazing. Anything happened in the 18th century. How was it the age of enlightenment with these broken, beaten children? It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? You know, and I go, when I go to the museum and I look at the paintings of that time and you look at these children, these very, you know, blank stared yeah. children. And I think, oh, the poor <laughs> child, what they went through to have that painting done. It's, it's pretty rampant. And I look through the lens of shame within everything I do now in my work, and it's fascinating how people turn around. And like, if I'm finishing up with a client and I'll say, you know, what's your biggest takeaway from our work together? They'll say, this whole idea of being enough. Everybody mm. says it. And I did a TED Talk last year about that. And I have mm. a little funny yeah. character, my, I call my Nuff, my N-U-F-F, like I am enough, you know, because yeah. we want to be playful and have fun with how we create a sense of self-compassion and self-love. And again, demystify that this is is a condition that many of us have, is this feeling of shame and not being good enough. So Tanvir, you mentioned this division, as shameful as the division might be between guilt and shame-based cultures, and the idea that guilt-based cultures are sort of built on the idea of the individual morality lies in our relationship with with God, if we're inclined, with the justice system, the state internalized in our conscience, it's that more personal relationship. When we do something wrong, we, we feel guilty, we express remorse, sometimes even accept punishment for our sins. And once all that's done, we're able to be forgiven. It's a sort of transaction, as I understand it, between our soul and the authority that can judge and pardon us. Whereas shame-based based cultures or the, the shame-based culture within all of our cultures where we, we're bound predominantly through our social ties and obligations to those in our community where, and this is where virtues like honour also sit, um, as well as I understand it. Now, you know, as you said, there's naturally no clear divide and and it's such a primitive emotion shame that we're, we all in the West still live within the realm of shame. But if I'm honest, I'm very happy I live in a society where disagreements don't escalate into issues of honour and shame and need to be settled um, with guns at dawn. And and in your book, you quoted the philosopher Martha um, Nussbaum, who said, shame punishments are wrong because they represent an improper partnership between the state and the crowd. You know, is this right? Is shame just not appropriate to the West? And if so, shouldn't we celebrate our growth away from shame towards guilt, which is seen as the appropriate and productive emotion for modern Western societies? Yeah, again, it's sort of not a this or that. Look, I guess my argument is we exist as groups innately um, or we have a relationship yearning for groups. And many of modern political trends, you know, whether it's identity politics, a lot of things that happened online sort of depict that in a way. And we don't always have a way of incorporating it. Now, I think Patty alluded to a form of shame, internalised shame. And I think a lot of the popular debate, you know, what Brené Brown talks about is often about that type of shame where there's some sort of internalised shame that leads to all these negative cognitions, uh, you know, whether it's avoidance behaviours, whether it's, well, you name it, whatever it is, you know, self-loathing. And that's often the popular uh, debates around the notion of shame. But I guess my argument is 
there's good and bad shaming. Healthy shaming is, and you see that right across the developing world or even locally in uh, re, you know, restorative justice, even group therapy. I talk about group therapy, like addiction groups. I write about, uh, in the book, I talk about group therapy. And in some ways, there's an element of healthy shaming in that where somebody transgresses a boundary, they might have you know, started drinking again or whatever, and immediately there's an element of a very gentle shaming, but it's always incorporated with some sort of reintegrative ritual. And I think you alluded to that even in your parenting question, that shaming can be healthy if there's an immediate ritual reintegrating someone or at least having a path back into the group. And this is where shame is still important because it still regulates our relationship to groups and, you know, one of the biggest yearnings, if you like, in modern life is this, you know, what sort of groups might we exist in? Um, and that's where shaming can be a really important, uh, you know, part of the uh, debate. Pat, now, Patty alluded to some other things, and she's right. In some ways, the last 200 years, our uh, stigma against primitive emotions, against shaming has driven all sorts of trends, whether it's been parenting, whether it's been our legal system, how we discipline kids in school. And they've all gone in a certain trend uh, as part of that, um, which haven't necessarily happened you know, in other parts of the world. So it is largely uh, a Western trend. I talk about what are modern versions of, versions of shame, yet we don't necessarily call it shame. One thing I talk about is social anxiety. And this is where people are so fearful of negative scrutiny. Uh, and this most commonly you see it around teenagers, where they're very avoidant and they're so self-conscious that it limits their ability to even go to school or interact in the playground. But it exists on a much bigger level, uh, especially, say, online. And it's probably one of the most common problems you see uh, in, in mental health. And I argue this is actually a modern version of shame because people have perceived groups. They, they yearn for affiliation, yet the signals they get are almost over, they oversensitize people to social rejection. And I, I'd argue social anxiety is a version of modern shame and my argument is that we almost live in a climate that elevates or mi- almost exacerbates signals of affiliation, our, our desire to connect. Until we can really, you know, name these things beyond the purely medical label, I think they, they don't have necessarily the, the, the same power. Thanks. Thanks, Tanvir. Patty. You know, there's a sense in Western psychology that our primary journey is in, in life is, a, is, is the journey of the individual. To be happy, we need to find ourselves, we explore ourselves, and importantly, as you talk about, to love ourselves. But the studies after studies that I've looked at have shown that happiness lies predominantly with human connection, with the ties that bind us. Isn't shame just a necessary byproduct of all these all-important social ties, one that we've evolved to feel alongside our evolved communal nature? And if so, shouldn't we embrace shame, maybe even embed it more formally, to Tanvir's point about reintegration, to make it more reliable and with clearer rules about how we reintegrate into society after we've been shamed? Mm. I don't think that, again, the whole idea of shaming someone Mm. versus what shame is itself is ever productive. But my dis- doctoral dissertation was on mothers who don't feel good enough. And that was pretty much the conclusion was this shame around a mom trying to learn how to parent differently, but can't 
seem to change the old patterns and they're repeating the shaming behavior of their parents. And then they shame themselves for shaming because they're trying to not shame. So I think that there's this, this element. And so I always tell parents that I work with now, there's always the repair, you know, it's okay. We don't have to shame ourselves for shaming our children. We do have to go back and repair the relationship and say, Hey, mom was having a really rough day. Let's talk about what happened in a different way. Ideally, we, I feel my perspective is if we can all learn a connection, yeah, we're wired for connection. We're not going to want, we're not going to feel loving connection with someone who's shaming us. We're going to feel bad about ourselves and that's going to grow over time. So the more we can connect and teach and train appropriate behavior rather than shaming to stop inappropriate behavior, the more we're going to connect a more uh, yeah. Or we're going yeah. to develop a more healthy society, I think, more connection. I mean, what if we could all get along and, and do that kind of thing? But we live in a culture where we're everybody's up against, you know, fighting against each other and, and arguing and trying to have a better perspective and shaming everybody to get their point across. And what, how is that productive in, at all? I, I yeah, so you're, you're saying in a sense... We can regulate social behavior and our connections in ways that are more productive than using shame. Like shame's a sort of, it sounds like it's an easy default to the primitive, which, you know, might be the quickest way to get something done, but it's, it, in a sense, it's damaging. And so they're, they're more effective tools that we can develop. And as parents, right at the beginning to how do you change behavior without using shame in, in group situations? Tanvi, just moving to the political philosophy lens, and you've alluded to some of this before, and I've been thinking about how social conservatives have used shame because it sits within their beliefs of social ties and obligations and virtues like loyalty and honour, and small-l liberalism, where shame has been put under the under the carpet in a sense because it hasn't been seen as relevant. Liberalism's founded more on the individual and the notions of individual freedom with the state as the arbiters of our social relations. But the progressive left, and you've written quite a bit about this, has emerged in the last decade or so and has challenged this uh, small L liberal order. And one of the ways it's done so is to bring back shame in a sense. So the progressive left has focused on the importance and real importance of not causing emotional harm. And we're told and we know that shaming is incredibly damaging, whether it's fat shaming, shaming someone for their sexual expressions or someone with a disability we're learning to be aware that our words, even if they're well-intentioned um, or factually true even, can cause harm. So we shouldn't shame someone for something that's an authentic expression of who they are. But on the other hand, shame has been weaponized by the left and other groups, um, fueled by social media, which we should talk about as well, through cancel culture. And canceling someone is, as I see it, shame-based, as we're not chastising someone for what they've done um, and asking them to repent and not do it again, but rather we see their action as proof of who they really are, of a stained, shameful soul. And so we need to cancel them as a person. How do you think about the resurgence of shame, particularly on the progressive left, but, but more broadly? And, and what are the rules now for reintegration into community? Look, it's a great question, Emil, and I think that absolutely overlaps with what I was alluding to, that, that the reality is whether we like it or not, you, we have yearnings for groups for a degree of tribalism, and, and sometimes that's not healthy, but, um, you know, a level of healthy group attachment is, is critical for a, a flourishing life. But what we had, what sort of situation we have now is we don't necessarily have healthy reintegrative rituals. 
and we have essentially bad shaming. We have sort of unhealthy shaming. I think previously in sort of institutional cultures, you know, you might be part of a congregation or you're part of a tribe, etc. I think in these sort of settings, you transgress a boundary, you might be an element of shame, but there was a path back. There was a path back. But increasingly, we don't necessarily have some of those paths. I mean, the online world is the, is the, is the classic one. Uh, but even elsewhere, you know, because we don't necessarily have formal rituals, even I see it even amongst friendship groups and, and families sometimes, um, where you know there's an element of that, there's a falling out, etc. And it, it's almost like we don't have kind of healthy rituals or, or traditional rituals or formal rituals of how to repair that. Sometimes, you know, Patty was alluding to you know uh, relationship repair again because we live in a, you know quite a secular, undifferentiated sort of society. Many of these things where you need some sort of ritual or there's primitive emotions and um, you know, speaking purely in in a medicalized form can be quite can be quite limited. Yeah, and you've also talked about how we are in a culture that is uncomfortable about difficult emotions, and shame has to be right at the top there of difficult emotions. And and so, if someone's shamed and has been expelled from a group, we we we're sort of we we don't have a broad enough palette to really be able to talk about how what that feels, how to integrate them, and, and, and I guess take shame out of the shame bucket. Shame shouldn't, at least if we're going to have shame, it shouldn't be shameful. It should be something that um, we know what to do with. We know how people, we, we know what triggers someone to be shamed from a group, and we know how to bring them back in ways that feel like they're secure boundaries. Yeah, it's so innate. I think just p- purely talking about it in really negative terms, I, I think that's the unhealthy part. Now, Patty alluded, I think Patty alluded, I think, again, a lot of the popular discussion around shame also overlaps with a sort of, I guess, an American, if not a mythology, one of the great sort of American uh, achievements is this idea you're, you can, you're in control of your life with positive thinking, you can shape your life uh, and overlaps a lot with cognitive behavioural therapy that you get rid of negative thoughts. So that's a real, if not a mythology, you know, it's a real core belief of the American dream. And arguably shame has become a villain within that dream. So within that story of American self-improvement and social mobility, shame has become uh, one of the villains of that of that story. And you alluded to it that I agree, there's a, there's a culture of positive thinking that can suppress primitive emotion. Yet, you know, and this is part of the reason things like psychoanalysis have, have I guess, be, receded from the culture, that, that we almost try and hide our instinctual selves and all these unconscious components. Uh, and this is part of the rise of, you know, figures like I think Jordan Peterson and what have you, that they do touch on these aspects of the self. They almost bring back the Freuds and the Jungs into, into popular parlance. Uh, and I think there's a real yearning for that. Tanvi, you mentioned in your book the value of shame when it comes to holding corporations to account, that corporations don't respond to guilt but they do to shame as they sit with a network of relationships with consumers. And so if they're publicly shamed for secretly using child labour or something, they really do feel the sting of it and it can motivate change. Do you think it's appropriate to use human emotions like shame when it comes to corporations? And, and I was just wondering, are there other emotions or even virtues like pride or honour that can be helpfully applied to corporations to encourage better behaviour? It's a great question, Emil. And this is where, yeah, obviously corporations aren't human, but there's, um, you know, there's legal behaviour and sometimes there might be what's considered unethical behaviour. And, I mean, there's a whole, uh, there's a, I've forgotten the name of the author, but, the, yeah, there was a woman who wrote about um, shame and corporations. And I guess her argument is shame can be quite useful in, in a way of regulating healthy 
behaviour for organisations where something is legal but it's quite clearly unethical. And obviously yeah. something ethical will, you know, will be subjective to an extent and it will depend on uh, different groups. Um, but this is where, you know, things like, you know, whether it's Nike in a, in a factory in Vietnam or, or, you know, an oil spill or all manner of these things. And this has been the power of social media where it can expose or the TV where it can expose something and it suddenly uh, gets magnified, the image gets magnified, you know, right across yeah. the world. Now, there's negatives of that too because I think sometimes that leads to emotive reasoning. So sometimes you can get very emotional types of reasoning uh, when that happens. But, but that is an example of we can almost have a sort of healthy type of shaming and you re, you're basically reintegrating, you know, in this case, a corporation into a healthy set of behaviours and and there should be a path as soon as that happens. Bang, they're they're back in the game if you like. You know, there's a there's a there's a reward for that. Um, so so I think yeah. that's another example of where there's sort of healthy and unhealthy types of shaming. And I think it's a limited discussion of shame when it is very specific to that internalized shame, very much very much about you know what we see maybe in uh, psychology practice where we're seeing an individual and we're seeing internalized versions of shame that might be linked to early development. I think shame is a is a much bigger, broader topic than that. Paddy, just staying in that corporate mold, you know, when I when I think about the way so many corporations have been run, how they've acted and still act, you know, including actions that led to climate change, the greed that led to the financial crises, and the very rational defense, as as Tamvi is saying, of those who run these corporations, that they are just maximizing value to shareholders and obeying the law. It, it makes me wonder whether we need more shame in our culture, not less, um, that we let people in power act too shamelessly. When I think of politics and the culture that seems to support and reward lying, you know, the populist figures like Trump, but also with the more seemingly moral politicians, sometimes I feel like saying, you know, you should you should be ashamed of yourself the way the way you've acted. And somehow shame and not guilt feels like the right emotion here because I wouldn't go, you should feel guilty, but there's something more primal that, you know, you, you should be ashamed. What do you think of this? Is there is there an argument to to use shame more in terms of people in power? My goodness, what a great question because, yeah, I mean, I want to say that a lot. So yeah, we do, don't we? <laughs> but <laughs> that I always think about, you know, it's easier to identify what we don't want than what we do want. So yeah. rather than shaming somebody for what they're doing, what is it, again, we're teaching, what is it we're encouraging? What do we want to build? And I think mm. it's a lot harder to get the story for what we're trying to build because we are always going back to this familiar idea of good and bad, you know, wrong and right. And you should be ashamed because that's bad. And so well, what are we mm. trying to do here? And I think that's the evolution of consciousness, really, mm. is like creating a whole new story. Um, I don't think it, again, I don't think it's, it's, it's not going to make any difference. If we told Donald Trump he should be ashamed of himself, he'd, he'd, he'd love that. You know, he'd think, <laughs> wow, that's great. Look at that. Look at that. You know, anyway. So again, I don't ever think that we need more shame. I think we need a construct of a different story. And that's the problem. It's never, it hasn't been written before, and that's where we get stuck. So we go back to these old ways of doing it. But really, the planet needs something really drastically different, doesn't it? And shame, and shame is not necessarily the way to, to bring about that change. Actually, Neil, can I just jump in there? One of the most interesting analysis I read of Trump was that he was essentially a presented 
almost all these primitive emotions that get suppressed in the culture. He was like the the id of kind of Western culture, especially America, and, it, and it's been suppressed for decades, those sort of emotions. And he was this epitome of it. He was like the id of the culture kind of, you know, kind of spewing out. We were unable to know how to process those sort of yeah, exactly. emotions in ourselves. It was all there. But Patty, I watched your wonderful TED talk where you talk about all the harmful effects of shame and you, you, you very bravely list the shameful moments in your life where you've been told you're not enough. One of them, if I remember correctly, is you've been told that you're tone deaf, that you can't sing. Uh, and your great response to that after many years of internalising that sense of not being a good enough singer is that you ended up learning to sing and you perform publicly and successfully, which is such an amazing way to come out of your shadow. But I'm a little curious about why being told one's tone deaf, for example, or anything like that is necessarily shame-inducing. So I was trying to apply it to myself. Let's pretend for the moment, and unfortunately it's actually not a pretense here, that I'm not athletic. I've got no natural athletic stamina or strength. Sure, I could train hard and improve, but the sad truth is that, you know, athletic prowess isn't a talent of mine. Uh, You know, I'm a bad athlete. So if I'm told that I'm a, you're a bad athlete, should I rightly feel ashamed or should I just acknowledge the truth and then I'm free to decide if I want to make the most out of my pathetic physique or not? So I guess I'm wondering whether there's a sort of shame overreach in society at the moment where any comment, truthful or not, can be interpreted by the receiver as shaming, even if the comment is just, you know, sort of as a matter of fact true. And that in the end, it's really on us, the receiver, to decide whether to interpret some comments as shameful or not. I think that goes back to the idea of, do you want to be an athlete or not? I mean, I wanted to sing and I stopped singing because people told me I couldn't sing. And when I finally met a voice instructor who just said, you can sing, you have an ear. And she's coached me to the point that I love singing. So I think whether or not you want to be an athlete is the key in that question. And if you're a bad athlete, somebody says, isn't necessarily a a statement of who you are, but it's just maybe not your strength. If you really want to be an athlete, I think you can. And I think you can override those shame stories, but I think it really comes down to what, that's the authentic self. What do I really want? What? And then we flourish those gifts to the degree that we find people that can support us. And if somebody is shamed that out of us, which is really pathetic that I stopped singing for, gosh, 50 years, probably, Mm. Um, maybe not that long, 40. And then I developed the talent to sing and how good it feels. But yeah, I let other people's opinions stop me from Mm. doing something I love. That's great. Thanks so much. That's great. Lloyd, I wanted to ask you a question, actually. You know, you emigrated from South Africa in your 30s. And I know there's there's a deep sense of shame that has permeated many South African emigrants as they benefited from the, the racist system of apartheid. And Australia too has a shameful past founded on the dispossession of our Indigenous peoples. Do you think we should feel ashamed of what our countries have done? I'm talking here about any country really, which is probably really every country which carries the burden of past sins. And and also just wondering, is there a lesson from South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commissions as a model for how we reintegrate um, society. Mm, wow. Uh, Emil, th- those are, whew, there's about four or five questions in, in each one of those. <laughs> that's, I was not, uh, that's pretty tough. I think that when I reflect on my experience 
as a white person in apartheid South Africa, you know, using the definition of guilt as I've done something bad rather than I am bad, I think I would feel guilty about many things in South Africa in terms of my experience as a white South African. I'm not talking about my my later work in human rights or in political activism. Uh, so, you know, just the degree of racism that I would have allowed for, not spoken up for, probably practiced myself. I have enormous amount of guilt. I'm not sure that I have a lot of shame about it, but certainly a lot of guilt. I did have the experience as soon as I uh, became politically involved and was very much part of, you know, uh, the human rights world in South Africa. When I chose to leave South Africa in 1997, much of my left-wing human rights community were very angry with me. And there was shaming. There was definitely, you are betraying the country by leaving, you opting out. And so, again, I, I was pretty clear about my choices, about why I was leaving. I, I, just couldn't, I just couldn't stay there anymore. I couldn't endure the violence. So I didn't really experience shame. But I would say as white South Africans all over the world, including white South Africans who still live in, in, in South Africa, I'm not sure that there has been sufficient exploration about just the day-to-day condoning of racism and the benefit that racism provided white people. I don't think there's been sufficient reflection. And that's why I all. see uh, that's why I would have thought that would be more shame than guilt because it somehow leaves a stain on your soul rather than being attached to the actions that you have benefited there's something about you which has indelibly mm. benefited from mm. you know forms of corruption and and oppression but but if we take the Brené Brown view that shame has to be internalized that you could feel really bad about your behavior and that is not shame because it's not about who you are but about what you've done i think that's there's a big difference between societies that feel guilt and societies that feel ashamed where I, I might even go, you know, as soon as societies feel ashamed, like Germany may feel after the Holocaust, I think a lot of Germans may feel very guilty, but they, their sense of self-esteem doesn't denigrate. Hmm. I, I, I have a different experience when I've talked to some Germans. There's a sense that there was a generation that felt ashamed and not just guilt, that it carried with them, uh, regardless of whether they yeah. caused the action or not. Yes. And that... You know, you have to do a lot of work to move that that sense of shame. Anyway, um, it's yeah, maybe. No, it's I, I think that's an interesting thing. I think I think you know, uh, a friend of mine's wife is Russian. They now live in London, and she will pretend not to be Russian. She just says, "I'm from East Europe." She's uh, ashamed of being Russian. She's, she's not ashamed, guilty. but she's but ashamed yes, of being she's Russian. ashamed, and it's it's it's. I think it's filtered into her identity to the point where, you know, she just feels bad about herself. Now, yeah. I think that is that is a deep sense of shame. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks so much to you both. Thank you so much, Patty and Tanvir. This was part one of our conversation on shame, but we will be back next week putting the guests on the couch and asking them the hard, unfiltered questions. 
Don't forget to leave a review if you're enjoying the show and spread the word. See you soon.